The resurrection is the golden note of Christianity. In Islam, everyone stays in the grave until resurrection day. And then on that day, every person stands before God to be judged. And it is on that day and that day alone that you find out whether or not you have practiced the five pillars of Islam sufficiently in order to enter heaven. You do not know until that day. In Buddhism, there is no real resurrection, only a continuous cycle of rebirth until nirvana is achieved. And we're not, not talking about the rock group here. Hinduism, there's only a rebirth of the soul in a new body. Treat your present soul well, someone else will get it next time around. There's no sure resurrection in Hinduism for you, yourself alone. In Christianity, resurrection is the highlight. And it is personal, and it is individual, and it is ultimate. There is no repetition of it or any such thing. There is just resurrection. In John chapter 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. And so I want to talk about that for a moment, the resurrection and the life out of John chapter 11. We're working through some chapters in the Gospel of John. These are chapters, uh, sections of Jesus' life leading up to uh, of course, the cross. And so this is the final miracle of Jesus on a big scale anyway. Uh, maybe Malchus' ear is considered a miracle, but uh, that, that besides that one, this is the last public miracle of, of Jesus. And it's interesting that it is the one that solidifies the resolve of the Jewish authorities to put Jesus to death. You'd think that a miracle on this scale would do exactly the opposite. But what we find in life is that those who are seeking Christ, a miracle encourages them. Those who are against Christ, it hardens them. Miracles do not change people, make them all of a sudden believe in Jesus, except the miracle of the new birth. Now that will do it. So I want you to see in, in these verses, I'm going to try to get all of them in, all 57 of them, okay? Um, but, you know, I will get you out before Easter. So how about that? We'll, we'll make that agreement. So the revelation of Jesus' person, first of all. And so let's uh, split it up here a, a little bit so we don't read so much at once. The revelation of Jesus. And so he's revealed through the meaning of his works. And so look at verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is always the, you know, he's like the Eeyore of the disciples. Have you ever noticed that? So he is, okay. And so here we are. So the meaning of his works. Here's what Jesus says about his friend that is, is dead. When we're looking at the timeline here, probably by the time Jesus got this message about Lazarus, he probably was already dead. And so Jesus waits uh, two more days before he goes. And by the time he gets there, they say, well, he's been dead four days. So he, he'd been, he, he, Lazarus was already dead. So the journey, however, the messenger came to Jesus and took him a while to get there. And so on time he gets back. And so it's four days have elapsed. And so what does Jesus say about this? He tells his disciples this. He says that this illness in verse 4 does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. What is the meaning of the works of Jesus? Throughout the Gospel of John, there are miracles that Jesus does. There are seven of them, and these are called the signs of the Savior. These are particular signs that he does, and that means it's more than just a miracle. They're meant to communicate something. Jesus' miracles are not just random things. He is expressing something about his person. And so here he is, and his work here is going to be for a particular purpose. And he says it's for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That's its purpose. But notice what he says before that in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. What does he mean by that? Well, the, the words that we're looking at here, it's really saying, what is the purpose of this illness? And when we're talking about the words it leads to, what it means is that it's not meant to give death the final say. Another way that you could translate this in just like everyday terms would be this. Here's what Jesus was saying. This illness is not for the purpose to give death center stage. But it is for the purpose of revealing the fact that God is infinitely superior and of ultimate worth and value. Do you understand how someone who dies, that in that situation, the only person that can meet that need is God. The only person that can do anything about it is God. And so the purpose of this illness unto death is not so that death would be magnified here. 
The purpose of it is so that God would be magnified and be seen as that one person that we must have in our lives. Have you ever thought about your illness? Have you ever thought about the day of your death? What is its purpose? Why? When, when, when a loved one dies, and we're talking about, let's talk about Christian loved ones now. When they die, the first question we have is why? Well, Jesus has given us the why right here. The purpose of your death is not so that death will have center stage. The purpose of it is so that God will be seen as being of ultimate worth and of superior worth to anything else in our lives. This is showing off that God is the greatest gain. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's what it is for the Christian. But too many times at funerals, we celebrate the person's life. Now, let me just say this to you. Um, most of the time, family, when you, you know, celebrate things about the person's life, the rest of us are clueless. We don't know. And, and so it's great that you, you do that, but most of the time it doesn't mean anything to us like it does to you. It's really kind of therapeutic for you to get to share that. And so that's one of the reasons that we do that is let the family say things about that person. And we do want to honor the person's life. It mattered. Even people that don't live very well, their life still mattered. It mattered that they lived. And then the other side of the funeral is that Oftentimes, we do the opposite thing. Rather than over-amplifying the person's life, we over-amplify death. Well, death is real. And we do mourn. And it's not wrong to mourn. But we must keep this in mind. The ultimate reason that we are gathered there is so that we can all be reminded that God is greater than death. And that he is worth whatever it takes that we may have him. That's why we are there. I lost a church member one time. Do you know why? She said she was tired of me sharing the gospel every time one of her family members died. Folks, I, I've lost church members for all kinds of reasons and you know, usually there's a smoke screen, like things like they don't like my personality. Well, they're not sophisticated enough, so I understand those things. Most of the time, what it really is, is they just don't want any Bible. They just don't want the Word of God interfering with their little playland. And so they don't want it. And so they don't take... Can you imagine having a church member say, we don't want you... How many times have I had funerals that, you know, somebody say, well, Pastor, now listen, listen now. You know, they want to advise me. I'm like, I'm on funeral number 234. I got this. Okay, so I'm going to give you a, con a true confession. Okay, can, can I give you one? So, Pastor Dan and I were doing a funeral one time, and, and it's not anybody that y'all know. So, y'all don't start guessing. And don't leave your, you know, with your feelings hurt. I'm telling a true story here, okay? So... I'm getting ready to preach a sermon, and a relative walks up to me before the sermon said, are you the pastor? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, listen, man, it's a long ride back to Kentucky. I said, I, I know that. He said, uh, 
I'll tell you what, you keep it short and I'll donate to your building fund. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I kept it short. <laughs> Ten minutes and I was done, man. We sat down and looked at him, is that good? That's good with me, I'm good. And the check came in. You know what my thinking was? He didn't want to hear it no way. Might as well do some good for the church, you know. Be the last good act of this poor soul that just passed away, you know. People are, people are funny. I mean, it's, it's, we, we have some good ones. And uh, so I, I better get off of that. My wife will reprimand me afterwards uh, for getting into that kind of thing. I get in a lot of trouble over that. Um, but it is just true. Well, what's the meaning of Jesus' works? What he's saying is it's for the glory of God, but it's for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you, do you know what it means to glorify God? In order to glorify God, there has to be a choice. There has to be God and there has to be an alternative. This is what was going on in the, in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was not for the purpose of Adam and Eve to sin. People say, why did God put the tree there anyway? You know, it, it is, isn't it always God's fault? You know, our rebellion is always God's fault, we think, right? But God, there has to be a choice here. There has to be So there has to be an alternative. And glorifying God means, Lord, you are worth so much more than this stupid tree. That we, we don't even acknowledge its presence. It matters nothing to us. Because you are everything. And this is what Jesus is saying. There is an alternative here. There is one, death. And we can fixate on death and we can say, well, death is terrible and it's awful and it is awful. That is true. And I don't know what we're going to do and we're going to despair. And it's just life and this life goes on and all the things we say to ourselves. And that's one way of looking at it. But that doesn't glorify God. What glorifies God is this. Death came onto us because of sin. And it's passed on to each one of us. And the, result, the reason we know that is all of sin. If you don't die, you didn't sin. So tell me you're sinless and we'll wait for your funeral, okay? And we all do. And so that's the reality of things. But what is greater than all of that is that God injects his life into the soul of a person. And that they may have life forevermore. And God is greater than death. And God is worthy of whatever he asks of me. And whatever it takes. And whatever God demands. He is worth all of that. Because he's greater than my worst enemy. To glorify God means to choose him. It means to set him as your everything. Not a piece of the pie. Not a, a strip on your ranking of things in the world. This is good and this is God is first, then this, this. God doesn't want to be ranked. He wants to be all. See, God is one of those, he's a jealous God. It's all or nothing. And so here he is just saying to glorify him means that we may look at him and go, God, you are so worth it. When we come to the grave, God, you are so worth it. That's the meaning of Jesus' works. The message of his words. He reveals his person through his own message in verses 17 and following. Let's pick up there and keep reading. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now, this four days thing, let me just stop here for just a minute. This four days thing may be important because the Jews evidently had this belief, and I guess it was current during Jesus' day. They believed that the soul of the person would hover around the body of, of the person that died for about three days. On the fourth day, and let me just be graphic, the visage, the face of the person began to show corruption of the body. And at that point, the soul would know this body is not going to come back. And so the soul would be gone. If that is the case, this four days thing was important. Not that Jesus believed that, but he wanted to be sure that any excuse that they might have would be eradicated. Whatever their superstition was, it's okay with him. Jesus will work with it. But he's going to make sure that even their superstition about death gets crushed here. So four days. Okay, so Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now. I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, take note of the faith of Martha and Mary. I mean, we we dare not cast stones at these people because, do, do you hear what they said? If you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. They knew Jesus could rescue him. Not only that, Martha goes on to say, I know if you ask it of the Father, he would give it to you. I know that the Father would give you the resurrection of Lazarus if you ask. Martha's faith was huge. Now listen, all that she knew about Jesus, all of it was from Old Testament teaching. Jesus didn't do anything but teach the Old Testament. That's all he did. He just explained it so that people looking for eternal life could understand how they could have it. She knew about the resurrection. How did she know about that from the Old Testament? 
You didn't have the New Testament yet. Isn't it it amazing that all these people came to Jesus and got saved with just the Old Testament? I would submit to you, be sure that you preach Jesus from the Old Testament. I have a little book in my office that says, Your Old Testament sermon needs to get saved. It's not just moralizing. We're talking about Christ here. What does Jesus say in his words? Well, these, these ultimate words that he says, I, in verse 35, uh, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, here's what he's saying here. First, that he is the very essence and force of resurrection life. If you want resurrection you have to have him his life has to be joined to your life his holy spirit has to be joined to your spirit however all of that works you have to have union with jesus that mystical union that comes about by faith so that has to happen in your life sometimes we call it getting saved but it's really getting jesus that's what you get and so when you're united to him He himself is the resurrection. He is the life power itself. Remember, it is God who breathed into the nostrils of man. He became a living soul. And so it is God. He is the one who gives life. Now, the problem with people is we think we're already alive because we have biological function. We think biological function equals life. And that's not what life is, not real life. That's living death. It's like saying that zombies are living a good life. Does that look good to you? That's what we are. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're walking around dead. Dead to God. Dead to mercy. Dead to grace. Dead to peace. Dead to everlasting life. All of the things that matter and last, we are, those are gone. We no longer have them. We've lost them in Adam. This is why we need resurrection. And what needs to happen in the life of every individual is not moral reform. It's not behavior modification. It's not cleaning yourself up a little bit. It's nothing short but the resurrection of your soul. That's what has to happen in your life. The physical resurrection is evidence. It just follows. Just as much as the death of your body is evidence of the corruption of sin in us, the resurrection of your body is evidence of the life of Christ having raised your soul from death. This is what the resurrection is. And Jesus is explaining here and he's saying, if you get me as your possession, you get the resurrection and you get life. And what does it take? What what is it that flips the switch? Whoever believes in me, he says. Let me camp on this just a minute. I think I was going to do it later, but let let me just do it for a moment. John, John has this strange wording in the Greek and you see it in English whoever believes in me believes in me we don't have as far as we know any other place in ancient Greek literature that belief is constructed in this way most of the time it's believe upon or believe about Or believe someone. But whoever believes Jesus. 
that would be the way that it's normally constructed in the Greek language. John has invented this phrase meaning genuine faith. Whoever believes in, ice, into, whoever believes into him, they don't just believe something about him. It's more than just believing that Jesus did something. It's higher than that. It's believing into Jesus. Leon Moore says it this way, it's the faith that takes men right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. This is the moral element of personal trust. It's not simply credence, mere credence, just assent, just agreement, just admitting, just confessing. It's not just that. The belief into Jesus is the kind of belief that lets go of this life and plunges oneself into the life of Christ. It's letting go of everything in order to grasp the hem of his robe. It's believing into him body, soul, and spirit. This is no mere thing about hoping or believing the facts. It's more than that. Of course you want to believe the facts. That's the beginning part. But this is a surrender. And John uses this as he quotes Jesus. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes into me, with a self-surrendering faith, even though you will die physically, yet you shall never lose life. You see, for the believer... Physical death is not a tragedy. It's liberty. It's stepping over the threshold of this dark world into a life that is life and sinless and peace and the presence of the Savior. That's life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Wait a minute. He said, even though you die, you'll live but never die. What does he mean by that? Your soul can never be touched by death, ever. If you are a follower of Jesus, your soul will never be touched by death. You now have life, and you will continue to have life. And one of these days, your body will catch up to it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're already living in the realm of death. And you are going to get more death. And your soul is going to have more and more death. Someone said one time of hell, it's like this. It's having all of your desires amplified with no possibility of ever satisfying them. You're thirsty? You don't know what thirst is yet. And no possibility of quenching it. Longing for relationship. Maybe some of you are lonely today. You don't know what loneliness is yet. In hell you're lonely and there's no possibility of relationship. Comfort. Some of you are uncomfortable. You've got a lot of physical ailments. You don't know what discomfort is yet. And no possibility of ever finding comfort. 
Some of you, your hearts are in turmoil today. You don't know what turmoil is yet. And in hell, turmoil will be amplified in your heart and soul. And there will be no peace to be found. Forever and ever and ever. That, my friend, is the opposite of life. Now we step into, as followers of Jesus, we step into the resurrection life now. Buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too should walk a new life. We begin to live life with the interaction of God in our souls. We are alive to him. And he begins to transform us. And we begin to see glimpses of that life that we will have in the future. You ever notice with God's people, every once in a while they mess up and do something right? Do you ever feel that way about yourself? You just look at someone, I did that right. What in the world? You know, how did that happen? It's a glimpse of the resurrection life. Every once in a while, one of the people, God, maybe they'll comfort you, encourage you. And you just think, I don't know why they did that today. It's a glimpse of the resurrection life. The rest of it is still the, you know, what's left of the old life, right? The corrupted life. And we're dealing with that all the time. But every once in a while, you see glimpses of the resurrection life shining through. We have a share in that life. And it's more than mere confidence in Jesus that has caused it. It's foundationally placing our complete trust and the ownership of our life into the one who is the resurrection itself. Belief here is not mental assent. It's surrender is what's required. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, it's a, it's a radical giving over of yourself. It's being done with living for self. It's, it's, done, it's being done with being self-directed and self-determination in your life. It's being done with that. It's giving up every, every kind of effort that you're making in order to earn God's approval. Instead, you throw it all upon Christ knowing that he's earned it for you. And now he can lead your life in a way that you never could before. The revelation of his person. Oh, we got to go on. It's too much. You talk about Jesus. It takes me time. I'm sorry. Look at the resurrection now by Jesus' power. Look at this, verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. Well, I thought she thought he could resurrect him. And Jesus is like calling her bluff now. There's a place when theology has got to get practical now, doesn't it? And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, what I want to point out here, there's a lot that can be said here. But one, one thing I want to point out in these verses is Jesus' anger at death. Verse 38 says, then Jesus deeply moved again. Now, earlier, uh, which, which verse was that? Uh, earlier on, we say that he was deeply moved and troubled. And that, it's the same word that's used there both times. It's a weird word. The, the, this word where, where it says that Jesus deeply, it was deeply moved. It really means to snort like a horse in anger. So when Jesus comes to this tomb, he is so angry with sin. He's so angry with death. He's so angry with the devil. 
that his response is, that's what he did at Lazarus' tomb. He's so tired of this. He's seen what it's done to God's creation. He's seen what it's done to his friend. And so deeply moved. Death is the object of his wrath. And he's also angry with the one behind death who is Satan. The Bible tells us that death is the last enemy that shall be destroyed. And Jesus is pointing out a fact here. I am the one to destroy it. Now look at Jesus' overthrow of death in these next verses. That's his anger. We've got to keep moving. So let's look at this. Verses 41 uh, and following. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John Calvin said that Jesus strides toward death like a champion preparing for conflict. Death is a fearful thing. It's an awful thing. Until the one who is himself the resurrection chokes its spindly little neck with the cords of life. How did Jesus do this? The same way that he created the world. With just a word. How does Jesus regenerate a dead soul? With his word. This is the point of this resurrection. This is the point just with his word. If Jesus can raise a person to life physically certainly he can raise a dead soul to life eternally when I was a kid I heard an old preacher say this if Jesus had not called Lazarus by name he would have emptied the whole graveyard well I don't know about that but the point is it's no harder for Jesus to raise all of his followers than it is just to raise one so his overthrow of death what Jesus is proving here is that he is worthy he is to be glorified he is to be honored because our worst enemy is death if you think it's not our worst enemy let me ask you this question why are you paying those insurance premiums you're putting out thousands of dollars for insurance why because you're hoping to avoid death somehow just another day right why are you doing that why do you have a life why do we do why do we invest so much money in vaccines and science and so we're trying to cheat death and why do we spend so stinking much money at the funeral home? Because we want to make people think it wasn't really death. It's our worst enemy and we have no answer to it. So we just try to dress it up. And Jesus says, I'm the answer. The answer to death is the resurrection. Now look at the reaction here to Jesus' presence. Verses 45 and following. Now you think there would be a party that would break out. This is an undeniable raising from the dead. A man who had verifiably been in the grave for four days and was stinking. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Of course. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. See, they don't even deny it. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you, brothers and sisters. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem uh, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus always divides. Have you ever noticed that? He just draws the line right down the middle. Step over the line or get back where you belong, one or the other. And he divides here. And so we, we find that there were many who did believe in him. And we're used to, John uses that phrase again, believing into Jesus. Didn't just believe something, didn't just believe that he performed a miracle, didn't just believe it was a great teacher, but they believed into him as the Son of God. So on the one hand, there were those who did believe, there was faith, but the other reaction was fear. What were they afraid of? Well, there had been several attempts of crazies in that day to rise up as a, a, a political zealot and say, look, I'm going to deliver us from these Romans. And so they'd gather a, a group of 200 guys with knives and pickaxes and torches and whatever and try to overthrow the Roman government and then there'd be this mass slaughter of people because Rome would, re, you know, would, would respond with force. And so they just didn't want this trouble. And Rome, the Romans were saying to the Jews, if you can't keep your people under control, We'll come in and keep it under control. We'll, we'll, we'll get rid of all this stuff. Because see, we think that temple worship stuff may be leading to this. And we're thinking that your religion is probably contributing to it. And we think you guys as leaders are stirring up the people. So if we have one more incident of this, we're coming in here and we're going to execute all you dudes. We're taking this away and we're closing the temple down. And so what do these religious leaders do? We can't have that. I mean, number one, it's their livelihood, right? This is how they make a living. Number two, it's their respect in the community. It's their status. What would they be if they didn't have this? I mean, what, what are they going to do? Work like everybody else? I mean, you know, what are they going to do here? And so the political loss and financial loss, these are a couple things they're afraid of. And so they would rather sacrifice Jesus than for all of this to interfere with their life. And isn't it the same today? You see, Paul counted all things as lost that he might gain Christ. A person has to see Christ as the ultimate gain before he or she is willing to suffer the loss of those things and the loss of the issues and things that are passing away. Resurrection life 
can be yours. But not until you die. What do I mean by that? You have to count this life as loss. That all of the things, the system that the world has in place that cause you to want to attain glory and honor and respect from everybody. How do you get there? Popularity, climbing the ladder of success, all of those things, all those elements. Don't make me name them all. All those things the world has out there in order to do what? That you may become something. That you may get glory. You may get honor. And what God is saying is you got to throw that away because there's only one who deserves glory and honor and applause and admiration. And his name is Jesus. That's what it means when Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. Do you know what a person with a cross, do you, do you know what? They really don't have any plans. They really don't have any big goals. They, they really don't have any ambitions about what they're going to make of their life. Do you know what they have? One direction and one only. To walk up the hill put themselves on that cross and let all of that be flushed away into the sewer of nothingness that they may live their life for the glory of God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life to which you're called. Every Christian. Not some of us, but every one of us are called to that life. The follower of Christ leaves this world with his or her fist clenched in victory. But the non-follower of Christ leaves this world gripped by fear and defeat. What is the difference? Is it an outlook? Is it a perspective? Is it a philosophy? What's the difference? No, it's the difference between the life of God in the soul of the person or the person who is devoid of life in their soul. That's the difference. The resurrection life can be yours. But not, un not unless you're willing to die. To count all gain, all glory of this world as nothing. As not worth pursuing in order that you may gain Christ. You see, many of us as Christians, we're just not broken yet. I'm not a horse rider guy. But I had two buddies and, and when I was growing up and they both had horses. And every once in a while he said, they'd say, hey man, you want to come ride horses? And so they had horses and go ride horses. And so one day... Um, the one, I don't want to call his name, he's, he probably, yeah. but one day he said, hey, listen, I want you to ride my new horse. I said, okay, cool, let me ride that thing. And so I go down, he said, I want to tell you something, this, this horse is different. I went, oh, boy. He said, this one's rain broke. I said, what do you mean? You know, normally with a horse, if you want him to go to the right, you've got you to pull the rein, you know, and, and, and the bit in his mouth will jerk him that way. He said, you just put the rein on his neck, and whatever way you put it, he'll go that way. Just like this. And boy, you're talking about easy to guide that horse. Just, man, I, I could ride that horse all day. You know, you would, 
on the other hand, I decided to take my son. We were living in Africa at the time. And I decided to take my son horseback riding on the beach. I thought this was a great idea. Father-son moment. And so um, we, you know, rented these horses from French people. Mistake. You see, I don't know if it's true for all French people, but everyone I've met, they just think everything ought to be natural. Are you, are you trending with me here? Well, my son's horse was a female. Mine was not. And that female, well, you get the picture. And so he was like, Dad, why does your horse keep getting after my horse? You know, I didn't ride that horse. I fought that horse for three hours. And we had a person that was a guide, you know. We're supposed to be going by and looking at these buildings, you know, that are built by the Portuguese in 1400 and something, you know. I can't see anything. I'm just fighting this horse, you know. And the whole time the guy was just saying, hit it, hit it. You know, so I spent, I mean, all you animal lovers, I'm sorry. But in French, you know, frappe, I, I just had a whip. I was just doing this for two solid hours. You know what the problem is? Our horse was wild. It wasn't broken. It wasn't submitted. Too many people try to stay like that, and they don't want to be rain broken by Jesus. They want eternal life, but they still want to live the natural life, just like a natural person without Christ. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, you cannot do that. If you want to come to Jesus, you have to give up that life. Now, I know as Christians, how many times do we wade back over into what we left? We do. And it's wrong. We pay the price for it, right? Frappe, frappe, you know, get hit. But, but I'm just saying, you, you can't do that. So don't think that Jesus is something you add on to what you're already doing. It's a resurrection life. How do you think Lazarus lived the rest of his days? I bet differently from before. When you've been raised by Christ, it's all different. And you'll never never be the same well let's pray together okay so bow with me in prayer we've been here long enough lord thank you so much for showing us this of yourself that you are the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in you though you're dead yet shall he live lord help us to know that the only way to have life in you connected to you in union with you is simply by believing into you all that we know about ourselves, giving all that we know about Jesus and giving that to him. Lord, I pray for those here today that have not yet started following Christ. And I pray, Father, that they would see that their soul must be raised and given life. Holy Spirit, would you blow the wind of life upon the hearts of those who do not yet believe that they may. And Lord, we will give you praise and honor for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.